Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Parliamentary Procedure with Chris and Victor. My name is Victor. And my name is Chris. And for this and the next few episodes, we wanted to dive into the particulars of the House of Representatives. In particular, speaking of particulars, this episode, we're going to be covering mainly the primary officers of Congress, and we're also going to be covering the basic roles of most of the committees. And particularly the primary officers of the House. The primary officer of the House that everyone has heard about and sees quite often on TV is the Speaker of the House. Currently, the Speaker is Nancy Pelosi. Some of the other officers that you might have not really heard of, but do exist in the House, is the Clerk of the House, the Surgeon at Arms. Yeah, yeah, it's like the, it's like the officer's rank. Or, sorry, the non-commissioned officer's rank. Sergeant at Arms, Chaplain, and Chief Administrative Officer. But the sergeant at arms isn't actually an enlisted officer. They're just an officer of the house. They're not a military officer. Right. Although I wouldn't be surprised. I know that in like England, they're equivalent to the sergeant at arms, and their black rod are usually um, traditionally appointed after they've served in the military. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if there were generally similar traditions in the United States. But this officer actually directly reports to Congress and exercises force on behalf of Congress. Uh, like, the, they, the president can't control this officer. In fact, Congress could order mm -hmm. this officer to arrest somebody, and the only person who could say not to do that would be Congress itself. And I guess the Supreme Court could technically enjoin the officer, but then if... Well, actually, probably not if the officer's operating within the grounds or within the chambers of the, yeah, the house yes. where they have special so, privileges. So that's what I was about to say. He That might cause a constitutional crisis. So some appointed officers include the parliamentarian, historian, general counsel, and inspector general. So these are officers typically appointed by the Speaker of the House, whereas the previous four officers I mentioned, just for reference again, the clerks, sergeant-at-arms, the chaplain, and the chief administrative officer, directly elected by the House, typically through a resolution of the House. To provide some more background on this, uh, this election typically occurs after the Speaker is elected and all the congressmen and congresswomen are sworn in. Then Congress typically passes a resolution re-electing the officers from the previous House to the current House, but they're not required to re-elect the same officers. They can substitute someone else if they really desire to. Right. But since most of these uh, these officers are generally doing things which are more administrative roles and not actually legislative things, there's not as much partisan pressure to change them up. So people who are good at their jobs will usually serve for uh, a decent chunk of time. Yeah. In fact, most of these officers try to maintain a nonpartisan attitude because their job really exactly. depends on just doing their job and not serving the interests of one party or the other. Right. They very much serve at the behest of the House of Representatives as a whole and not for the Republicans or the Democrats when they're in power. So we mentioned officers of the House, and then there's also actual leadership in the House, which is a slightly different thing. Right. And the, these are people who are actually the elected members of the House of Representatives who are from all of the various different states. Those are the people in the leadership roles because it's the leadership of a House committee or the leadership of like a party caucus or things like that, where these are actual political roles. The one officer which is part of this leadership is the speaker, who is the chosen member from the majority party. And generally, the speaker always serves in a partisan manner. But... Most rulings of the speaker are done on advice of the parliamentarian, and if the majority party doesn't really like a current ruling or current interpretation of the parliamentary procedure, what the speaker will usually do is issue the ruling that the parliamentarian suggests, and then the majority party will just ask to appeal the decision of the chair. So the speaker himself is actually the, the leader of the House of Representatives in the sense that he's actually the person who's supposed to maintain order in the body and technically chairs the general meetings. He also has a few other roles. Do you want to tell us about him? As Chris says, the speaker serves as chair. The speaker serves as the moderator of the House. The speaker is in charge of choosing which members get recognized before the House floor. So essentially any speeches you see on the floor of the House, any, any debates, any 
legislation being brought before the floor of the house before which means the entire house is all coordinated by the speaker so the speaker decides who's going to say what typically the minority party is allowed to choose their own speakers who will oppose certain measures so but the speaker essentially decides all of these things for the majority party and technically has the unwritten power to decide for the minority party or just not recognize the minority party at all. But typically, just as a matter of good governance, the speaker lets the minority caucus work within their own to, to find who will speak on certain issues. Actually, just for the sake of comparative, a little bit of comparative politics in England, where the speaker of the house actually is like the original one, the speaker represents a very impartial, like very non-partial job where he does chair the meetings and stuff like that. But his job is very much to facilitate fairness as much as possible. I mean, it is still an elected position and it is still elected from a representative in the House of Commons, but it's much, much the, he's not the most important officer there because the prime minister is also still in the house. So there's a much more fair and sort of balanced speaker in the English system, which is very much in contrast. Let's move back into talking about the speaker of the U.S. House. Uh, so just another point to mention is typically the speaker actually doesn't even preside in the modern day house. Typically, the speaker actually appoints a speaker pro tempore. Pro tempore, that means for a time. So typically, a depending on what the issue is being debated before the entire house, how important it is, the speaker will probably have a junior member of the house serve as the presiding officer of the house for a time in order to give that member experience with parliamentary procedure and presiding before a large chamber. But when the speaker wants to preside, the speaker could at any time decide to preside in front of Congress. Like for example, when the Democrats were passing the Healthcare American Care Act, uh, Speaker Pelosi was presiding before the House. Yeah, the speakers show up when it's, you know, big events so that'll make them look good. Yes, exactly. Or important events so they can take the credit for doing important things. The rules of the House also allow the speaker to designate a list of members who will, who can serve as a speaker in their absence. This is particularly an interesting rule because the speaker could designate someone who will serve as the kind of speaker if in the case of their death or disappearance or something like <laughs> that or or their absence so this hasn't this hasn't really ever happened typically the rules say that at some point they'll the house will convene and elect a new speaker but it's unclear as who's considered the actual speaker in that case now let's now let's go back to the actual speaker not the not the person who's before the house but the actual role of the speaker in the house the speaker, who at this point is Nancy Pelosi, a representative, is also a representative of Congress. They represent their district. But at the same time, if you really look at it, they don't sit on any committee. So technically, the speaker is the most powerful member of the House. But at the same time, the speaker isn't a member of any committee, which leads to some questions, if you would. Right. And interestingly, the speaker also doesn't typically chair the um, House when it's sitting in a committee of the whole, which is particularly interesting when you consider the fact that a lot of the bigger pieces of legislation that come through the House of Representatives are debated, at least for a, a significant while, in a committee of the whole before they report back to the general body. And so that means that at least for significant periods of time, there's a time when the actual chair isn't the speaker because um, the speaker kind of sits back in the role when he's gets to he gets to kind of sit back and act like a general member again when they're meeting in the committee as a whole. So it it opens up an interesting sort of dynamic. I feel like. Well, yes, it would it would generally open up an interesting dynamic, but because the the house is controlled by the majority party in a sense. That dynamic doesn't really exist because the majority party typically only elects someone who can command that majority. So the speaker is essentially the leadership role in the House. So essentially, 
the rules do give the speaker a lot of power too. Like the speaker, if the speaker doesn't like a bill or a resolution, they'll just not put it before the house. Or what they'll do is they will refer the bill or not, sorry, refer is the wrong word. They'll ask the rules committee to refer a bill to the floor of the house, which the speaker can decide to consider before any other bill. And this bill will say, uh, we the house upon adoption of this bill amend this other bill to say whatever we want it to say. And that is something that is done on, on occasion by the rules committee, but because the rules committee is heavily stacked in favor of the party in power, uh, essentially anything the speaker wants a bill to say will be said in that bill because the rules committee is typically stacked with people who are in very, very safe district seats. So they'll just vote the way the party really needs them to vote in a sense in the committee. And then when it's before the entire floor, it will just be some procedural rule. It won't even, won't even be the final resolution at issue because that resolution will be passed by the house separately. So, so essentially the speaker has a very strong role in the house because the speaker can decide what gets brought before the house and the order things are presented before the house. Well, how about we talk a little bit about how the speaker actually came to have this powerful role? Because like I said earlier, the speaker in England, not really, I mean, they're technically vested with lots of powers, but they're not the, they're certainly not the opposition leader or, or the, I mean, they're just not the most powerful figure in the house, but in the American Congress, which in many ways has been modeled after the English system, we find that this radical departure happened where our speaker is one of the most powerful figures in the government. So, you know, how did this process come about? At first, there's the gradual change in just convention. At some point, Henry Clay was the kind of the first famous speaker in the country. So right. Henry Clay was elected as uh, Speaker of the House. And he actually was the first speaker to speak on the House floor during debate. So this was when the this is when the right, this this transitionary period from the sort of the, the classical idea of a speaker who is an impartial referee to an active participant. Yes. So this so Clay became an active participant in the House by participating in debates. Right. Additionally, it's interesting to remember though that Clay was actually like still still involved in the House. And actively so during, I think, the build-up to, what, the Civil War? Uh, no, that can't. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think he was involved. He was influential, like, uh, super prominent in the Mississippi, sorry, the Missouri, not the Mississippi Compromise, which, I mean, very much led up into, like, only heightened the tensions in the slave state, free state conflict. Like, his his role in American politics is actually very massive. Like, his, his footprint on American history is huge. Well, yes. It's a little bit underappreciated. Yes, but at the same time, he had a lot more prominence as a senator because he later became a senator. That's true. But he was first a speaker. It's kind of actually a really interesting case. Like, Henry Clay, who had so much power as a speaker of the House, decided to become a senator. And whereas any modern-day speaker, I, I don't think they would ever run for Senate. I mean, it's it's just like... Yeah, it's a bit of a sideways yeah. and even side of downwards move, depending on. What I mean, kind of like, depending on what you're. You don't have any seniority in the Senate once you get there. I mean, yeah, unless you become the majority leader or the minority leader in some sense, yeah, you will not have any seniority in the Senate. So, I, I don't, I can't imagine a modern day speaker running for election to the Senate, but, but like, we really see the prominence of the speaker gain steam with Henry Clay. And then what happens even later on is when Henry Clay was the speaker, there was no rules committee of the House. So rules were done in a separate manner. But then in, uh, in 1858, the rules committee was created as a sort of ad hoc committee of the House. And the speaker was tasked with chairing this committee. So in a sense, the speaker served as the most powerful member of the House even though like this power was not exercised as much as it was exercised in the present day. But the speaker gained even more power because they started chairing the rules committee. So essentially any, 
any language that the majority party supports in a normal parliamentary system is very difficult or will take a lot of time to get before the entire body because there's typical standard procedure. Like, right. But here we have the rules committee, which essentially is empowered to amend the rules. And this amendment only requires majority vote of the house. And this rule amendment can be brought up at any time. So with the majority party support, you can adopt any rule you would like. Kind of at will too, right? Yeah, exactly. You can, Report it any time you want. It does not. It doesn't privilege the rules committee report if it's less than 24 hours old or something like <laughs> that, I, or maybe 48 hours. I forget the exact days, but so you, right. But the person who enforces those rules would also be what the speaker of the house, right? Yes, uh, but, tip, so, but typically the rules are in the house at least. They're not changed through an appeal of the chair, essentially. Uh, typically right, but house. I guess what I mean more is rules are rules, but they only have as much force as the enforcing body yes. really lends them. So what rules are really followed and how stringently I think they're followed? I think all the rules there, I think, I think typically the rules that are recorded are followed, but in a sense, if a rule is not like the majority party can change it at any point, essentially. In the, in the Senate, rules have been changed through a simple appeal of the decision of the chair, and then the Senate decides to reinterpret language that only can possibly mean one thing to mean something completely different. But because it's a lot harder to formally amend the rules in the Senate, but formally amending the rules in the House is very easy. And I think the majority party does it when it's necessary. <laughs> when it suits them. Yeah, exactly. Um, another thing that really gave the speaker more power was uh, Speaker Thomas Reeds, a representative from Maine. Uh, he essentially seized some power as the speaker by <laughs> just getting rid of a long-standing precedent of the House where members of the House could refuse to answer in a quorum call. And when they refused to answer, they were considered absent, so they weren't counted towards quorum. So because the first century and a half of American politics, it was kind of difficult to move about the country. Like it would take weeks or maybe even a month to get to Washington, D.C. So it was quite possible right. that a large number of representatives would be absent because they're at yeah. their districts doing. Imagine the, the representatives from California. Yeah, exactly. You know, like before planes, it's a very long journey. Yes, exactly. So it's difficult to get to Washington, D.C., from the West Coast or from the plains of the United States. Also, what, what what's important to remember, though, just to fully flesh that out, is because any act of Congress or so any act of the House of Representatives requires that the House actually has a quorum when members exercise their right not to answer. Um, they were effectively shutting down the House and preventing it from voting on something while still being there and still actually having a legitimate quorum if you were a reasonable human being who saw that these people were in the house. So on one hand, it was done to stop the minority from being able to stall legislation, which is a bit of a red flag because when the majority takes away minority rights, sometimes it's a problem. But on the other hand, this is a very clear case of a minority um, party kind of abusing rules in a certain sense, I feel. Kind of, but the same sense, it kind of gave the minority party essentially a veto or something that they strongly disagreed about so like the idea was that the majority party had to bring all their members in and vote on these issues but i mean in the present day this is no longer an issue i mean in the present day <laughs> it's accepted practice that if these members are present or trying to evade uh, a quorum call i mean typically the minority party doesn't evade a quorum call anymore by not answering the call typically it's done by them leaving actual house <laughs> and right and trying to run away before they're counted but typically the way this is enforced nowadays is they just ask the sergeant in arms to go out and arrest <laughs> those absent members which is something a small might a, a small number of members can order the house to do so it's kind of pretty interesting so the speaker just decided to count those members who were 
who were present, but in the past they were considered absent because they didn't respond. He just t- told the clerk, oh, I see this person is here. You have to count them. <laughs> in, 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 well, in isn't sense, it great when politicians are a little honest? <laughs> it's amazing. Yes. Um, but to bring that a little further, it no longer allowed essentially the minority party to stall business before the House. Right. Well, it no longer gave the minority party that means of slowing down business because there are plenty of other ones as any experienced <laughs> parliamentarian ought to know yes. essentially the speaker was the one who decided which members of the majority serve on which committees so the speaker got to appoint uh, members to different committees so the speaker could put very loyal representatives on the rules committee and once again the rules committee anything that reports to the house can be voted on immediately or essentially whatever the speaker decides he or she wants to vote on it. Just to just to highlight that, I don't know if we mentioned earlier, but the speaker appoints, I think, what, nine um, members to the Rules Committee, and then the rest, the four others, are appointed by the, the minority party's um, leadership. So a nine-to-four ratio on the committee that can put business before the House at almost any time. Which yes, so the House can decide has, based on its own leadership's whim. It has some restrictions on what it can put before in such a manner. Like, again, I right. mentioned the the waiting time requirement, but this waiting time requirement doesn't apply when it actually matters. So at the end of Congress, <laughs> like when Congress is about to adjourn, signed day, which means the new Congress is about to start, and this is probably a lame duck session, at that point, that rule no longer applies. Also, the rules committee can't like report on legislation that another committee is considering, for example, but they can report a rule that discharges the other <laughs> committee's legislation they're considering and amends it to say something else. Right. So like even even when there are these limits, like it, it's one thing to say, and you're right to say that they have limits, but these are, in the grand scheme of things, their powers vastly outweigh the limits to them yes which depending on how you view the like role of government isn't necessarily a bad thing though when you consider at the end of the day a majority was elected by presumably the majority of the people in the nation and so arguably the majority ought to be able to have a way of bringing about the legislation it wants like that's the point of a democracy the majority wins and to a certain respect, it's do whatever it wants, so far as it, and so long as it respects certain inalienable rights of minority of like the minorities. Well, but I would say that's a lot more defensible in like a in like a representative democracy where a fully represented democracy where like essentially like in most European parliaments, the number of representatives in parliament is directly coordinated related to the number of votes that party got. So instead of the district by district elections, some countries, they just vote, you vote for a particular party on the ballot. And then if let's say a party gets 40% of the vote, they get 40% of the seats in the legislature, for example. Now here, it usually works out that way. So if you actually look at the vote percent, if you get a majority of the votes in in House elections, you'll usually get control of the majority of the House. But actually, these past few years, it's been a bit skewed. But essentially, it's still at least partially partially relevant. Like, your total vote count is, is still very strongly correlated with your representation in Congress. Now, let's just talk about a brief moment, kind of actually surprising in uh, 1932 which was like the height of the great depression right when there was a lot and a lot of democrats in the house they actually Mm -hmm. met the new deal they actually managed to change the rules of the of of the house and essentially now instead of the speaker always deciding what issues are brought before the house they amended the requirements for a discharge petition and instead requiring a a majority 
of the house for a discharge petition, now only a third of the house could cause it. Right. And a discharge petition is a motion that gets passed that forces the speaker to make the house actually hear a motion. Right? Yes, a discharge petition take up lets legislation. anything get before the floor of the house, regardless of how the speaker feels. Um, so it's it's nice. I mean, it definitely gives, like, for example, when the Democrats were in the minority in uh, the first, uh, so not now, but like a year ago, they were trying to force a vote on a certain issue, like this vote was being done on a bill to so essentially they were trying to address the DAC student status in the U.S. And they were very actively trying to get a district petition signed. And once the once the minority party all signed it, they only needed to get a few Republican signatures to actually bring this vote to a full vote of the House, regardless of what the speaker thought of the issue. Back then, with only one third of the house requirements, essentially any issue could be brought to the full house for a vote because yeah, actually that's a that's amazing. That's that's just not a large amount of the yeah, house. I mean, it's I can't think of a carry on. It's very rare that a party has less than a third in the legislature. Right, given the way that we have two parties, <laughs> and there's generally only a few like representatives difference. But, wow. Now, the Speaker also has a prerogative to appoint the chairs of committees in the House, at least for the majority party. Now, this has actually been slightly changed these past few years. So, at least in the Democratic caucus, these chairs are actually chosen by the caucus in instead of the Speaker. But the Speaker, I believe, has the authority to set the assumed chair, like who we assume the chair will be. But the party caucus can change that assumption. So, for example, Frank Pallone, he's currently the chair of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Before he was chair, he was the ranking member of the committee when the Democrats were in the minority. But essentially, at some point, uh, the speak current speaker of the House, then the minority leader tried to have someone else be the chair. And at that point, the caucus stepped in and actually elected Pallone as the ranking member designee. And because of that, he retained his designee as the chair of the Energy Committee. Wow. Always nice when a New Jersey politician gets to stay in power. <laughs> I can give you the exact details. So in 2014, Pallone was essentially supposed to be the ranking member in the Committee on Energy and Commerce. That was essentially like the Democratic tradition because he was the most senior member in the committee. He was supposed to be the ranking member. But Anna Eshu was supported by Pelosi to become the ranking member, in a sense, because she was supported by Pelosi. If she became the ranking member, she would then essentially be the chair of the committee once the Democrats regained the majority. He was promoted to the ranking member, or was supposed to be promoted to the ranking member, but Pelosi backed um, uh, Congressman Anna Eshu. And then the Congressional Black Caucus decided to support Pallone because they thought it was very important to preserve the seniority in the Democratic Caucus in order to allow um, historically underrepresented representatives to serve in leadership roles. Hmm. That's an interesting idea. Is it because were, were there are a number of, I'm not sure if you have this information, but was it because at the time there was a number of African American representatives who hadn't yet, who were in line for positions, or was it just they had noticed that a seniority rule was a better way? Like, it seems strange to me that they wouldn't think that having the chair's discretion would, wouldn't that be easier for them to sort of guarantee um, roles for them as opposed to just relying on seniority? I believe I'm quoting some somebody, or <laughs> essentially, this is the sentiment of it is. Historically, the quickest way African members earned gavels was essentially through okay. seniority. I mean, I could I, I could see so, how that would make sense because certainly, if you take into account the fact that most of the party leadership has been old white men for most of history, I mean, it doesn't take a genius to put two and two together and see why seniority might be the easiest way to get the gavel. Then. So yeah, and then, but 
like once again, the speaker stacked the steering committee of the Democratic caucus and they essentially recommended uh, Pelosi's choice. Mm -hmm. But then the entire caucus just reinstated Pelosi as the ranking member. Very, uh, wow. And it was actually a close vote. It was 100 to 90. Speaker's powers really just depend on their ability to control the majority caucus. So essentially, if the majority caucus doesn't support the speaker, anything the speaker tries to do will not receive votes, essentially. I mean, there's a little bit of leeway if the speaker is, if like this happened a lot with uh, John Boehner and President Obama. The, the speaker would negotiate something with President Obama and then only a minority of the Republican caucus actually supported it. So the speaker would still put up for a vote, but re- would rely on the Democratic caucus to actually pass the legislation. Um, but but yeah, essentially, the, the at the core of it, the House really depends on the majority of the House. But due to good party discipline, at least historically, the speaker controls a lot of right. power because the party will usually vote. And it's important to remember though, that that power that the speaker wields over his own party isn't just a feature of historic sort of oddity. It is a feature of the fact that the speaker oftentimes has power and priority in deciding who's going to get leadership positions, who's going to get party funding, who's going to get a lot of these little incidental benefits that all these little things that piece together are favors that the chair, that the leadership can hand out to people. And when people, when politicians want to advance up through their party, they need to curry favor with the speaker. So that's why you can maintain discipline because there's a sort of carrot and stick policy where you do what the speaker wants. Next time you want something, the speaker maybe thinks a little bit more favorably of you. It's a little bit like the mafia and the godfather. You help the godfather out and when you need something, he might help you out in your time of need. But there's strings attached. Yeah, like you said, the speaker controls a lot of political donors a lot of cash for individual members of the house which they really need to get reelected. they need to have the speaker help them out but another thing why i believe the speaker also gets a lot of power is the speaker is essentially the fall person uh a representative from a from a very swing district can blame the speaker for not putting something on the floor whereas in reality that representative could have at any point signed a discharge petition or done something else to really get a a measure that maybe their district wants, but the majority party doesn't support. So like, for example, if you're a Democrat in a swing district currently, you probably rely on the speaker to not put on issues that you don't want to talk about when you're running for re-election. So the more conservative Democrats are probably going to be lobbying the House Speaker to not vote on like Medicare for all or maybe a more toned down version of Medicare for all so that when they go back for re-election, they don't have to tell voters that they're, I don't know, whatever, whatever is considered. You know, they voted for death like panels yes. when Obamacare was coming out, that sort of thing. Or another example of this is, let's say your district is a swing district, but at the same time, there might be like a lot of voters with values that oppose marijuana legalization, right? Or, or big pharmaceutical companies in district. Cough, New Jersey, cough. You don't want to have to vote on these issues that will either get you attacked by big donors who will no longer donate to your campaign and instead donate to the opposition, or will get you attacked by the opposition candidates for you voting in support of them. So if you're in a swing district, want to not vote to legalize marijuana because that'll be more ammunition. But at the same time, you don't want to create a primary challenge where people are going to try to campaign against you because you voted against marijuana legalization. So if you just don't deal with the issue at all, you're in a better, you're in a better place in some sense. So that's why I believe the speaker is given a lot of power by the majority party because they want the speaker to essentially moderate these tough issues and not deal with these tough issues when they go for re-election. Now, let's delve deeper into the control of the agenda of the House. The agenda of the House is essentially set by the speaker, and this is done through two primary 
tools. As we previously mentioned, the Rules Committee, but another important part of this is the House calendars. So the Rules Committee can at any time report anything that amends the rules to the House. And these rule amendments can be very particular where they then amend some other legislation or they say, we're going to vote on this bill. So a typical bill will not receive a vote or will not be privileged, but a rules committee report is always privileged. So then the rules committee can say, we're going to amend the rules so that this other legislation that we really want to vote on will get voted on today. So for example, let's say there is a bill to provide for universal health care and it's been reported out of committee, but it's not a privilege, privilege resolution. Privilege means it can be voted on right now. But a rules committee resolution is always privileged. So this committee reports, we're going to amend the rules so that this bill to provide for health care for all will now be privilege resolution and we'll vote on it immediately after this, this bill. And then essentially the rules committee can be like, we're going to allow amendments, or the Rules Committee can be like, we're not going to allow amendments. Uh, the one thing is the rules require the Rules Committee to allow the bill to be referred back to committee. So the one thing the Rules Committee can't say is they can't prevent all parliamentary procedures. So the minority party gets to at least one, make one motion to refer the bill at issue back to committee. But Everything else, the Rules Committee can prevent amendments, they can prevent um, further debate on the issue. They just have to give uh, the minority party the ability to refer the matter back to the committee it came from. But of course, if you have the majority of the House, you'll vote down that motion and then you'll vote in favor of the bill. Now, the other thing that gives the Speaker a lot of ability is the House calendars. So whenever an issue is reported to the House, it goes on a particular calendar, depending on what, what calendar corresponds to what issue. We can go into more detail on calendars in a later episode, but essentially a calendar is like a menu. It's not, we have to vote on this on a particular day. It's what things can the House vote on right now if we were to, if we were to go through the calendar, essentially. Right. So it's things that are no longer that the committee, a committee has also like finished working on and has said, okay, here's a finished product, at least substantially finished so that everyone else can look at it now sorts of things as well. Exactly. And also the speaker can be like, I'm going to choose this member to introduce their bill that's on the calendar. And essentially in that sense, because the speaker knows from talking with that member from prior agreement that that member will bring up a particular bill for a vote. Speaker just recognizes that member and that member says, I want to bring up this thing for a vote. Okay, so I think we've done a lot of great discussion about the speaker. Chris, do you want to tell us about the House Parliamentarian? Sure. So first of all, just an overview of what the Parliamentarian's functions are. Well, firstly, the parliamentarian is a nonpartisan, um, confidential guide to the parliamentary procedures of the House for any member who has a question. So, if a member wanted to propose a a motion but wasn't quite sure how to do that, if it were a particular obscure motion, or just the member was new and didn't have a lot of experience with parliamentary procedure as such. They would go to the office of the parliamentarian because the parliamentarian maintains several members of staff whose job is it to update the precedent of the house. But they go to that office. They'd say, hey, I have this issue that I'd like you to help me out with. The office would do its research on the question, would find out the answer, and then provide that answer to the representative to allow them to better communicate their sort of what they hope to achieve through the house so as well as that sort of actual functional i help people uh, help representatives understand how to actually operate their own house the the parliamentarian maintains the precedence of the house and compiles the manuals every few years um, and the manuals and as well as the sort of precedent books 
are just compilations of the various rulings on house rules that come up throughout the course of just regular business. Now, do you think um, house members actually read the house manual? I would be shocked. I would be very shocked if most house... I wouldn't be surprised if some house members did read the rules. There are many lawyers in the house, and there are many uh, people who are interested in parliamentary procedure who are politically interested. Like People who are interested in these sorts of things do like to know precedent, and certain people understand that understanding how to manipulate the system is an effective way to pass legislation, or at least to bring about the action you want. So I wouldn't be surprised if some people did, but I have to imagine that most representatives are not going to read the whole manual because it's A, more, more than a thousand pages long, but B, because most representatives don't need to know it because they can go to the parliamentarian when there are serious questions. And also the parliamentarian sits in and helps the speaker or the speaker pro tempores actually run the show, as it were. And most of the people who need to know how to do parliamentary things are the people sitting in the front of the room at the rostrum doing the um, most of the talking. So a lot of the times the professional staff, which is the parliamentarian or the other attorneys that are hired by Congress, those are the people who really need to know that stuff. And when representatives want to know, they'll ask them. Do you think that it's that it's good that the parliamentarian is confidential? Um, I mean, there's a reason that they need to be part confidential because there there are times when you might ask the parliamentarian, "How do I make this motion?" And people knowing that you're asking about how to make a particular motion will give away a like a strategy. And there is an argument to be made for transparency, but there's also an argument for the fact that nobody needs to know quite exactly how the sausage is made to actually get the sausage made. So if you want to have, you know, if you want to allow members to have fair rights and not have to tell every other member, hey, here's exactly what I'm planning to do, then you need that confidentiality. Um, on the, Not even on the other hand, just furthermore, there's nothing to really, there's no harmful effect of confidentiality in these sorts of situations because the parliamentarian is still offering impartial nonpartisan advice so whatever he is telling you is just going to be the laws of congress the way that they operate and if you're allowed to utilize those lawfully it's not really problematic because eventually it's going to be public what you intend to do because you have to publicly make a motion that's going to be recorded in the house's you know proceedings well, Presently now, but actually, quite interestingly, in the past, uh, signatures on discharge petitions are actually considered confidential. That's true, but even so, the vast majority of actions taken in the House are recorded either in the journal or on C-SPAN these days, or in some form of media where it can eventually be collected, collated, and, and tracked back to the the person who made the motion but also like again parliamentary procedure motions aren't dangerous in and of themselves okay but so they're confidential so what about like weird questions representative may have because currently the rules authorize all members of the house to be drug tested for example what if a what if a house member starts asking the parliamentarian parliamentary on how to evade a drug test like well i think one every parliament or every member of the well one to just really back it up the fact that drug me, drug tests can be required is ridiculous and grossly unjust um no member of the government should ever be allowed to ask you you know what you choose to do in the privacy of your own home unless it actively affects your work so if maybe if a member came in like drunk and was disorderly that might be called to do a drug test and even then i personally have deep qualms about drug testing in general but um for members if a member wants to know how to evade something there's a presumption that the member is acting um honorably members are accorded the presumption of 
of being reputable members of society after all they are representatives of the people and so they're not imputed with any sort of guilt and if they ask a question maybe they have a legitimate reason for asking it and the parliamentarian isn't entitled to know that reason all the time the parliamentarian is an employee of the house and all of its members each severally so it's not as though he has some higher duty to other members if one member asks a question it's equally as prioritized, at least in the sense that it's equally worthy of privacy as any other member. Could a parliamentarian be subpoenaed to testify in court against some congressman? Hypothetically? So hypothetically, it would be unlikely. So with the House is accorded, well, the House, its members, its officers are accorded the privilege of the House which means that insofar as the business that they're conducting relates to house business, they're free from having to answer subpoenas, going to the courts, anything sort of in that realm, because when the house is acting for itself, well, in the past, back all the way in jolly old England, house members were arrested by the king when they passed legislation he didn't like, and that was permissible because there's no rules against it, but it meant that House members couldn't openly debate all of their ideas. You couldn't say in the House of Commons, if you knew that the king was listening and could arrest you, that maybe we should get rid of the king. You can't be saying that because then the king will just lock you up. So after that sort of experience in the English Civil Wars, the House of Commons started asserting its own privileges. Um, and those got transferred down to the American House. And it's just this sort of, it's a part of the separation of powers. If the judiciary could force congressmen to just appear before it, it wouldn't really be a fairly balanced system because the judiciary is kind of its own co-equal partner in government. Equal partners are equals and thus don't really have the right to compel each other, sort of. It's That's an actually an interesting question, too, because it touches on the reason why a lot of presidents have asserted that when they do something like Nixon's famous, when the president does it, it's not illegal. There's some precedent for that in the sense that the president, like the, the president is the head of one of the co-equal branches of government and each branch is in certain um, interpretations able to interpret the constitution as it wills in its own sort of different ways. And so that means that like, uh, the president can say, well, actually, no, this is a lawful thing. And the Congress say, no, it's not. And the judiciary could say, no, it's not. And then we have to balance and decide, you know, which one's right. But that's just a little bit of tangent. But yeah, the privilege of the House is what protects its officers and its members from having to respond to subpoenas or court orders. They can voluntarily waive that right. The branches of government are treated, you know, checked and balanced fairly and that the Congress can actually speak freely without having to worry about the whims of like being attacked by outside pressures. We've we've touched on committee chairs in the previous episode a little bit and it's also just sort of been a word that we've bandied about throughout this episode. Committee chairs are the people who chair each of the committees of the house and just like the speaker of the house is very powerful because he controls the sort of disposition of the general body the chairs of the committees are very powerful because they control the primary functions of the um, committees. Um, if you want to tell us a little bit more about some of the like key, I mean, you are an actual chair in RUSA, whereas I was, uh, technically I also served as a chair of a committee, but it was a three-person committee and it was offered, it didn't, I did not run it as a traditional committee, it would be run, I ran it more as a court, but you have a little bit more experience actually being a chair of a committee and so if you could shed some light a bit on the functions. As a committee chair, at least in a less in a less high stakes setting, like for example in student government or if you're a committee chair in some local board or local uh, let's say PTA or some other local Or an alumni organization. Your role Yes, an alumni organization. Your role is really to kind of manage the business of the committee and to kind of uh, kind of help the committee do its tasks. So essentially, you're kind of responsible for making sure the committee is effective and achieves achieves its goals. So, for example, 
a lot of the times when we proposed legislation or proposed a resolution on a certain matter, I would either draft it or I would assign a person who was willing to do it to draft it. So essentially you're kind of like the manager of the committee in a non-high stakes situation, I would say. And so essentially, even in a high stakes situation, even in Congress, the committee chair do have some very formal rule authority and they have a lot of uh, a lot of leeway and a lot of authority that's informal as well. But their formal authority is the chair really decides the agenda. Uh, I believe most places allow agendas to be amended by the members, but in general, the chair decides the initial agenda and usually this is not really questioned. The chair also, in Congress at least, has a very sly role. It's not as important nowadays, but in the past it was very important was let's say a chair's committee decides that they really want something. So really the chair has no, has no, has no choice but to let the committee debate and pass a resolution or a bill. What the chair can do is he can decide to not tell the House that this was passed. So the chair can decide to hold on to an issue and not formally report it to the House. Then this issue would never make it onto the House calendar and in a sense, it would never be voted on because it was never really approved for, it was never really reported as something that could be voted on by the entire house. So this was a way that chairs could stop things from becoming laws. Uh, I imagine the present day house, if a chair opposed something, but the majority of the caucus didn't, they would probably just pass a special rule to report it to the entire house and bring it to a vote. Formally not reporting an issue is something that I have in a sense even done in Russo. Like it was my job as chair to let the executive committee know that we That's passed true. something. That's very true. But, but we had a deadline. We had to report it by right. a certain time, and if it wasn't it wasn't reported, and you and you you did create an agenda which you did then offer to allow. Like then at the beginning of every meeting, the members approved the previous agenda or could make amendments to it so if they felt that you didn't report something and could make or didn't record something on uh, on the agenda that should have been they had the ability to sort of modify that but i did that because i was essentially a <laughs> i tried to encourage debate and i tried to encourage people right. to talk about things in the committee and should try to really create a good environment in the committee I, uh i know other chairs they would just do what they wanted and their members be damned <laughs> These little microcosms in, in student government undoubtedly have some parallels to the way that committees are run, even at the in the House of Representatives. I mean, chairs, to a certain extent, get to define their roles, or at least define how they're going to run their committees. Yes, and for example, like some committees, like the Appropriations Committee, are typically run in a bipartisan manner. Like if you if you look at the and because of that, like if you look at the um, resolution of disapproval that where they were trying to disapprove uh, Trump's uh, allocation of wall funding, uh, the senators who voted in favor of that resolution, because of course Republicans controlled the majority of the Senate, yet somehow the resolution made it out of the Senate. Uh, most of the senators who voted in favor of that resolution were actually members of the Appropriations Committee because they were trying to preserve the power of the purse in, in Congress. And since they're really the ones deciding what money goes where, they had the most at stake in a sense. But yeah, so definitely committees are, can be run in a different matter and that can really change the dynamic in that committee. And lastly, this is probably definitely true for most local organizations and slightly less true, but also part of the chair's responsibilities is the funding, is controlling the fund funding of the committee. So if the, if the, legislative body allocates funding to particular committees, or if you're a part of an organization which provides for committees to host certain events or to, or some small, or some small, or a small committee budget so the committee can like print things and uh, make copies of other things. Or if you're, or if you're like a higher class organization, for example, in, at Rutgers, we have the University Senate and the Executive Committee 
had some formal roles within the university. That committee was provided a secretary, and the funds to pay for that secretary were partially controlled by the chair because once again, this is a very big university, but essentially the, the chair had a lot of control over this funding. And similarly, in Congress, the chair has control of some of some of the funding of the committee. In fact, the majority of the funding, like the chair, helps hire the staff of the majority party. The ranking member helps hire the staff. In addition to committee chairs, there's other influential people who are also chairs, but they're chairs of slightly different bodies. Like, for example, there's the House Democratic and Republican Party caucuses. Those the chairs of those committees are pretty influential in terms of their official role before the House. They are the ones who formally propose the House rules to be adopted by the House. They formally propose the election of the candidate supported by the majority caucus to speakership. So there's a lot of, um, of kind of informal things they do too. And there's also like a lot of uh, setting the agenda for the majority party that they play a role in. Right. But uh, we should also mention that there are a ton of caucuses though. There are a bunch of, what all the caucuses is just a subset of representatives that are grouped around a particular cause. So there, like we've mentioned earlier, there's a black caucus, which is made up of the African-American, uh, the African-American yeah, representative. The congressional black caucus. Right. There's yes. also... It, it's nonpartisan technically, yeah. which is important. And, and there's also like, there's a caucus that's, I can't remember its official name, but it's effectively like the Tea Party Caucus. Um, there are special interest caucuses. There are a bunch of different... And when I say special interest, I mean, like, a special, a, a particular interest that multiple representatives have, not, like, a special interest is in, like, a lobbying Yes. But also, also just go back, going back to the Democratic and Republican caucus, those are the caucuses that nominate members from their party for leadership positions in the House, so the chairs of the House come from these caucuses. And it's actually particularly interesting to note that the Republican caucus actually has term limits on how long a chair can serve as a chair in the House. So, for example, the Republican caucus limits uh, six years of service as a ranking member or as a chair of a committee right. combined. And that would be, what, three where, consecutive terms? Six years? Yes, essentially essentially, just three consecutive terms. Uh, so, whereas, uh, it just to... Uh, bring a counterpart in the Senate. The Senate Republican Caucus also has that same rule, except it's not combined. So you get six years as ranking member and you get six years as a chair of a committee. Uh, Democrats have no such um, rules, which kind of in a sense gives more authority to more people in the Democratic Caucus than the Republican Caucus because chairs really gain a lot of independent authority just because of their ability to really set the agenda of a particular committee and to control the particular the legislative goals of a, of a committee. And really, whenever a measure is passed, that the chair is the one who's going to be essentially guiding it through the House. So like the chair will be the one who's going to lead the debate for the majority party before the entire House. The chair will be the one who uh, is essentially decides which members from the majority party will speak in favor of the bill and for how long. And you need the support of the chair to pass something out of that committee 99% of the time. Otherwise, if the chair is not supporting you, your bill is probably dead on arrival, unless it's some very big issue. But like 99% of the time, the chair is the one who decides that this is something that I support and this is something I'll get out of committee. By term limiting chairs, the Republican caucus essentially shifts a lot more power to the leader to the leadership of the party, so a lot more power to the majority leader and the speaker when they're in power, or a lot more power to the minority leader when they're not the majority party. And that kind of gives that uh, it kind of removes the ability for those ranking members or those chairs to really have a certain independent authority because eventually they'll 
be termed out and then someone else will su succeed them and they won't have the ability to really preserve their authority over the years and they won't really have an ability to kind of challenge the authority of the majority uh, or the minority leader. Um, like, for example, when Pallone challenged the authority of uh, Nancy Pelosi, he won because he had such a... Because essentially, yeah. Whereas uh, when the Republicans took control back of the House um, after the 2010 elections, the speaker had a lot of power in deciding whether or not he's going to enforce the caucus rules that prevent uh, someone from serving as chair if they served for six years as the ranking member of the committee. So, so in this sense, it's this John Boehner at the time predicts draft law, uh, a lot of um, favors from the chairs in order for them to serve longer as chair. Right. It's just, it, in general, it's important to note that Anytime you're in the position for, like, you get to accumulate time in your position. One, it's just a fact of political elections and campaigning that incumbents are generally more easily electable than a new candidate. Um, but two, especially for the chairs, because they are so integral to the function of the committee, the longer they're there, the more they can sort of build themselves into the very fabric of the committee and then it becomes very hard for other people to mount a successful challenge against them because who would be more qualified than the person who's been doing this job forever and also they can kind of you know when you control a committee that gives you leverage for more junior members as well and you can build up your own sort of network of patronage and favors as the committee chair even if you're not, say, the speaker or the majority leader. It's just another focal point of power that you can leverage against others. The sense gives the chair the ability to even challenge the the speaker if they really support an issue, they really want to bring up something for a vote. Right. They can try to mask that, like a party revolt, revolt in a sense, so they can try to get the... They can try to pass some bipartisan right. legislation because... They have, let's say they have the bipartisan support of their entire committee, both right. Democrats and Republicans. Well, I have a question for you building off of that, though. Do you think, considering the way the Republican Party is so much more focused on the actual um, majority leader, or not even necessarily majority, but the party leader, because there's term limits on the chairs and the chairs themselves are weak, that the party leader then is going to be able to amass that much more power. And that's why we see, at least in the Republican House, so much more discipline in the voting and so fewer defections and things like that. Whereas in Democrat parties, you see uh, the, the chair having a little bit harder of a time maintaining the control of everyone because there are other independent points of power. Or do you think that there's some other, other unrelated cause? I think that's definitely a contributing factor. That That's partially why there's a lot of... Uh, there's some more dissent in the Democratic Party. But I think there's other factors like the Democratic Party's membership in the House is very, very diverse now. They come from very different backgrounds. I think that partially leads to it. But like, for example, um, I could see something happening in the House where it, where like, for example, a chair from a, maybe a, more of a swing district would might support uh, some kind of, gun liber liberalization legislation or something in a sense just to kind of uh, say that they're supporting their constituents second amendment rights and i can see how potentially they could gain some bipartisan support in their committees from their um from definitely the republicans in their committee and maybe some democrats in their committee and i don't think that will particularly happen now but i think that that's something that has partially happened in the past and something that could maybe happen on this issue or some similar issues where a committee chair is responsible for passing something through the house that without this uh, level, without this independence from the leadership of the majority party, they wouldn't have been able to do so. Thank you for paying attention and staying with us this whole episode. Stay tuned. We are releasing these first two episodes just get a taste of what we're doing. 
Uh, next time we plan to talk about more detailed rules about the house. So we want to go over some interesting house presses that both Chris and I enjoy. Of particular interest you might find if we're going to be discussing the power of the house to essentially subpoena and essentially obtain the tax income tax returns of any individual in the United States. Or we're going to discuss the legal issues surrounding that. Right. And just as a general sort of notification to you listeners out there, the these first two episodes were very much more sort of us giving you an introduction to just the fundamentals of the House of Representatives in Congress. Going forward, though, we're, prob- we're, we're transitioning to more of the precedence of the House, looking at those rules that shape the way that the House functions, and looking at how they came to be, and trying to figure out well, is this a cool, not cool, but is this a good rule? Can we improve it if we were designing it ourselves? What do we think is good about it? What do we think is bad about it? We're just really going to be discussing a little in depth each week, or not, perhaps not each week, but each episode, uh, particular interesting aspects of the rules. Um, so just that's a little taste of what's going forward.